My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. This is the second of a five-part series on the twin 2010 and 2021 earthquakes in Haiti. In our first episode, we talked about the destruction that the 2010 earthquake wrought and why it was so devastating. In this second episode, we're going to talk with broad strokes about the relief effort. Now, I want to set the tone as early as possible. It's so easy to be critical, to call people out, to wonder how things could have gone so wrong. But we must, must remember that these were by and large people who wanted to help. Their hearts were broken for what they saw on television and were moved to compassion. Even large aid organizations were grappling with a monstrous task in the most difficult of environments. Glib comments that simplify the challenges don't help anyone. Telling organizations that they should listen more to locals is not constructive unless we understand why no one listened to Haitians. Saying that aid categorically is ineffective, particularly in Haiti, paints with a brush that is, in my opinion, way too broad. Certainly, I'm biased, I suppose, but my point is that life is always more complex, rarely black and white. My goal here is to talk about some of the reasons Haiti was not built back better. And as we unpack those challenges, we can hope that perhaps this newest calamity will be tackled more effectively. It will not be perfect, that's certain, but it can be better. In the days, weeks, and months after the first earthquake, all Americans remember the urgent call for help. It was on every news station, every website. 45% of Americans financially donated to help the devastated island nation. Millions were given by simple text message. Nations across the globe pledged nearly $16 billion in help. And yet, here we are. As I drive through the outskirts of Port-au-Prince on my way to work, it is still a painfully difficult place to live. The roads are dirt ruts. Malnutrition is rife. The economy is in a tailspin. Many survivors are huddled in makeshift shantytowns to the north of the city. Life is tough. It feels like there's a disconnect between the outpouring of generosity and the grim reality on the ground in Haiti today. So what happened? There are many aspects of earthquake relief that need to be studied and changes that need to be made. It has been examined by many articles and books. There were problems in housing, developing the economy, and construction. But if I had to sum it up in one sentence, the international community overpromised, underdelivered, and undervalued Haitian opinions. It was rarely a problem of evil intent it was probably more of a combination of hubris and lack of understanding. In the next two episodes, we are going to discuss two different organizations and how they tackled these issues. But in this episode, I want to talk broadly about the mistakes that were made. The first issue, and honestly, I've never even seen this mentioned before in the media, is that we need to learn to be more realistic. I put this under the heading of overpromising. And when I say overpromising, I mean both to ourselves and to Haitians. Let's talk about some figures quickly. After the earthquake, $16 billion were pledged by nations around the world. And that feels like an enormous sum of money. It is. And yet, after months and years went by, only a fraction of that was ever actually given. It's a little-known fact that after disasters, countries will announce how much money they plan to give. But then, just as in the United States, they actually have to get those plans passed through their legislatures and political systems. As we know in America, that's not a sure thing. So after all that politicking, according to AP journalist Jonathan Katz, a little bit less than $3 billion 
went to Haiti over the first several years. The rest was never approved. Now, this figure does not include the cost of UN troops coming to Haiti, and it is admittedly a moving target, difficult to pin down and verify. But let's assume it's the case. That's a lot of money, right? It was enough that the international community boldly proclaimed that they were going to build back better. When we as humans hear a large number, we always need to put it into perspective. Otherwise, it has almost no meaning for us. Let's do that for this catastrophe. The earthquake caused an estimated $7.8 billion in damage. $7.8 billion in damages, $3 billion in aid. The amount was not enough even to cover the damages. You would have needed twice as much funding just to make Haiti what it was at the moment the earthquake hit. Expecting the country to be more advanced than before the catastrophe is a pipe dream. And yet, countries and organizations not only promised, but expected that with their help, Haiti would be transformed. I'm not necessarily saying that we need to give more money. I'm just saying that we need to be honest about what it can do. Even so, $3 billion sounds like a ton of money. Let's break that down and make it mean something. Now, Haiti has 11 million people. That means that each Haitian would receive, on average, $272 in aid. Now, all of this was not spent at once. That was spread out over a few years. Many of these families had lost everything. As we put this into perspective, let's recall the stimulus in the U.S. during the coronavirus. Americans received $1,200 and then $600 and then $1,400 in addition to unemployment benefits. And their house was still standing. So yes, $3 billion was a lot of money, but it was dwarfed by the damages, and $272 per person is not exactly enough to perform an economic miracle. Or, let's compare this money to the amount spent for the bumbled federal response to Hurricane Katrina. For a city slightly smaller than Port-au-Prince, our federal government directed $114 billion for aid. And it was still kind of a disaster of a relief effort. People were critical from the very start about the inadequacy of the response in New Orleans. But this was, wait for it, 38 times the amount of money that was spent in Haiti. Or if you like, we could talk about the $2 trillion investment in Afghanistan. We don't need to wade into those waters, but at the very least, we can admit that with that debacle, we were disappointed by the fruits. So yes, $3 billion is a lot, but it's probably not life-changing. This is a common major problem that I see. In the comfort of their U.S. homes, prior to getting down into the nitty-gritty challenges of working in a place like Haiti, many people feel compelled to make unfounded promises. We're going to make this place work. With a couple good, scalable ideas, everything will change. But you cannot say that until you've worked in the country, until you know what the challenges are. What Haiti needs is international organizations, local politicians, and partners to make realistic, doable promises. We recognize that change can happen. But it might not be overnight, and it takes a lot of dedication. Otherwise, we will constantly under-deliver for the Haitian people. If you don't have the funds to fully rebuild Haiti, that's okay. Just say it. It was generous to give $272 per person, and I really mean that sincerely. But let's just check our expectations before we demand transformational change. Be honest with others and yourself. The second issue, widely recognized, was the method by which money was given and the involvement of locals. It is a misconception that this money was somehow embezzled by the Haitian government. The Haitian government received only 1% of aid dollars. And I'm not saying that the Haitian government is a paragon of fiscal and ethical responsibility, but this time it really wasn't their fault. It seems from study after study that most money was spent by international organizations that were new to the country. 
it led to gridlock as newly arrived organizations try to decide how to spend money in a foreign culture. And this is hard. I recognize it. It was an emergency. They didn't have time to take courses on the local language or customs. They didn't know the challenges they would face. Most crucially, these organizations did not have trusted leaders and partners that were Haitians. They tried, I'm sure, at least the large organizations. But finding trusted, qualified people is next to impossible in the aftermath of a major disaster. Much human capital had perished in the earthquake. But more importantly, showing up in a country with millions of dollars in aid is rarely the recipe to find trustworthy, capable workers. Paradoxically, this influx of cash can attract persons for all the wrong reasons. In these environments, you are more successful and less likely to run into corruption if you start slow and build up. And then one day, years down the line, you can actually do million-dollar projects. But you have to learn who you can trust and who can give you advice. This is the challenge of entering a country de novo the day after a disaster. There is no way to ramp up slowly, to build up a team of leaders. Therefore, I would argue that organizations that are positioned to succeed are those that have deep roots in the country. And we'll see that in episode 5. Good Haitian leadership is not just window dressing to make you feel good about yourself. It is essential. After nearly two years in Haiti, let me speak from my experience. I did not know what I did not know. Without my Haitian friends, I would have overpaid for everything. I would have gotten fleeced at stores. I would have gotten into business with con men and fraudsters. I would have been focused on rigid timelines and predictive spreadsheets until whole projects fell apart. You cannot succeed in this environment acting solely like an American. Now, the third issue is not so much a problem that needs fixing. To me, it's a mindset shift. We need to have recognition of the value that Haitians brought in the rescue. In the aftermath of the quake, there were thousands of people stuck under rubble. Who extracted them? The answer might surprise you. In the days following, the U.S. generously sent their military search and rescue teams to Port-au-Prince. You might think that with their advanced tools and equipment, they were the ones that saved most people. In truth, though, the vast majority of people that were pulled from homes were saved by their neighbors. This is not a knock on the American rescue teams. Everyone should be grateful for their contributions, but it's rather a fact about a disaster. The total bill for the U.S. rescue teams was $47 million. They extracted 49 people. On the other hand, the people in a disaster are usually both the victims and the rescuers at the same time. They are the ones on the ground in the crucial minutes and hours following an event. It is important simply to recognize their contributions to the relief effort. They are not only victims. Now, people talk about the earthquake relief as if evil people took the money and became rich and left the country poor. And maybe that was the case in some instances. But with these situations, I prefer to stick to the axiom The simplest explanation is usually the best one. And the simplest explanation to me is that organizations simply didn't know how to help. They had no idea how to operate in a completely foreign environment. And a massive disaster is the worst time to learn a culture. So where did the money go? It's a complicated answer with a lot of facets. There was the hubris that $272 per person spent on mostly non-Haitian staff was going to suddenly make Haiti a financial success story. The amount spent was less than the actual damages from the earthquake. And yet we promised Haiti and ourselves that it would be better than before. To add to this, most organizations were unable or unwilling to put Haitians in positions that could guide them in effecting change in the country. In other words, we overpromised, underdelivered, and undervalued Haitian opinions. And again, 
This is not meant to insult those organizations that came to help or imply that these are bad people. We are never going to get this perfect, but we can seek to learn together. And if we do that, we can achieve that initial gut desire that we all have in the aftermath of a calamity to relieve suffering. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history, and there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti, or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.